over time, Bitcoin will be the uh, benchmark for proper capital allocation and everything else is going to pay the pauper. And uh, Western Union, uh, I'm sorry, guys, but your business is going the way of the horse and buggy. Hello from the United States. How are you all doing? I'm just about to head off on the drive and headed down to Boston. I'm going to catch a flight over to Nashville. I've got a WBD live session next Thursday. Hopefully that's going to be with Preston Pish and Marty Bent. Pretty cool. It's going to be pretty intimate, about 50 people, keeping it small, but keep an eye on my Twitter. I'll be announcing tickets later on today. Anyway, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Andy Edstrom and Greg Foss, where we are going to be discussing Evergrande and credit risk. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. And today I'm kicking off with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Life software, which interfaces with your device. And you can also connect your Nano S to your Android phone and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please do head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I haven't sold anything yet. I've not sold a single sat through Gemini because we're still in a bull market. And why do you want to sell those sats? Hold all those sats, hold all them hard, but I have been buying the dip. I'm buying all the dips using the Gemini app, and I also have a DCA set up with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And do you know what? I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing. And that is all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And next up, we have my newest sponsor, Compass Mining. Damn, you guys love Compass. I've had so many people reaching out to me asking about Compass. And do you know what? They aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer as well. I bought five S19s. I've been mining with Compass for nearly 40 days. I've mined over 0.11 Bitcoin, which is worth close to $5,000. It's so good to be back mining. Now, Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be contributing to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. And it was so easy to get on board. It can be for you as well. You just reach out to them, pick the machines you want, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the work for you. Now, if you are interested in getting into mining, you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. And also BlockFi. They recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, if you're in the US and if you own Bitcoin, if you want to stack some more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way to get more Bitcoin because they pay you back 1.5% in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats, but not only that, you get 3.5% back on all purchases in the first three months of owning the card and 2% back on every purchase over $50,000. Now, if you are interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, on to the show today, and I'm joined by Greg Foss and Andy Estrom to get into the Evergrande news, which I'm sure you can't have helped but hear about over the last couple of weeks. Lots of news coming out about this faltering Chinese real estate giant, and some of the news is sounding pretty ominous. People are comparing them to Lehman, and markets have been hit hard pretty pretty badly across the world, including Bitcoin. Bitcoin took a little bit of a tumble as well. Now, I don't think this is a Lehman situation, but it is definitely something to keep an eye on. And while this stuff all sounds scary... 
it's not something I'm going to answer for you. So I've got a couple of smart guys on. You love Greg, and I know you guys love Andy. So yeah, we got them on, ask them about it. And also we get into like deeper topics of why Bitcoin is a hedge for situations like this, why Bitcoin is so important. You know the story, you know where this goes. Anyway, onto the show. Hope you enjoyed it. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me, hop into my Telegram group, or you can email me on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, over to Greg and over to Andy. Right, Andy, good to see you. It's been a while. Great to see you, Pete. Well, been a while in Bitcoin terms. It's probably only been a few months. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a while. I think it maybe has been six months, but a lot of lot of water under the bridge. Yeah, a lot of water. Bitcoin years are, are pretty uh, pretty quick. Uh, Greg, I've seen you a few times recently. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. It's uh, yeah, we had a great time in Boston, didn't we? And the a Peter Schiff mm-hmm. debate was painful, but uh, I appreciate everything you did. Um, you know what? I think that uh, no harm, no foul, and. Uh, just get the the idea across that if you can never be a hundred percent certain about anything, you got to hedge those risks, as I'm sure Andy would, uh, uh, you know, uh, agree to. And the only thing we are certain about is the fiat debasement. That's just pure math. So, well, I think we move shift a little bit closer. It was interesting seeing the comments because a lot of people are like, "Why are you wasting your time with him?" But I feel like it helps me sharpen my tools. But he admitted in that interview that we did that he sees a he sees a need for a cryptocurrency obviously he wants it backed by gold which is stupid uh-huh. because that brings back centralized risk but i think we moved the needle forward with him just a little bit so i'm glad at this point uh, it's he's he's an afterthought now for us i think he should be because uh <laughs> At the end of the day, he's so close. If he's going to fumble the ball on the one yard line each time, uh, that that's his prerogative because uh, he knows everything. <laughs> he, he knows he knows the reasons you need to own hard assets, and he's just uh, you know he is what he is. So uh, let's move on. <laughs> fumble the ball on the one yard line. That's like uh, we'd call that missing an open goal. Um, anyway, we've got a, another big topic to talk about. It's been uh, massively in the news recently. We're going to talk about Evergrande. Uh, Something that we need to cover because we need to think about if there's any kind of systemic systemic risk within the system. Um, although every time uh, there appears to be uh, jitters within uh, the traditional markets, Bitcoin also jitters, which is uh, not really the narrative we keep telling ourselves. But anyway, let's cover this. Lots to talk about. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start with you, Andy Evergrande. I'm just going to kick it off. Like, what do we know for? Uh, anyone listening might have heard it in the news or seen something on Twitter. What do we know about this situation? Yeah, well, first disclaimer, which is take it all with a grain of salt, because uh, as you know, Chinese company reporting uh, can be less than perfect. But uh, yeah, let's start with the basics. Um, we know, we think we know that it's a big property development company, which means they literally acquire land, build buildings, and then sell them to their customers. Although much of the selling uh, happens before the building, which complicates things and uh, will uh, be important to our discussion later. Um, They've got over 100,000 employees, um, thousands of housing projects in the works. And when I say housing projects, I'm not talking about individual homes, talking about big apartment buildings. All over China, every province, they have something going on, including lots of the mid-sized and smaller cities, not just the big ones. Um, They've got uh, roughly $300 billion of liabilities. Now, only about a quarter of those liabilities are actual interest-bearing instruments that we might call bonds or bank debt. Um, But nevertheless, $300 billion, it's a pretty big number. You know, the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, that balance sheet uh, was about $600 billion, so twice the size 
back then, you know, plus inflation, but still a big number, um, very big number. And uh, I'm sure uh, Greg can get into the details on the bonds, but uh, the price chart is uh, pretty scary. Bonds have gone from like 90 cents to 25 cents in pretty short order. Stocks down 90%. They're facing an interest payment uh, tomorrow. We're recording on Wednesday. Um, that's over $80 million. And um, so that's the the very quick situation. I mean, the company is 25 years old. It's one of the three largest property developers in China. The founder and chairman owns the majority of the stock, which actually made him the richest man in China a few years ago before the stock tanked. And um, yeah, it's uh, it looks like it's insolvent. Maybe the most uh, interesting stat is it seems that over a million people, that's Chinese people, have money exposed to it because they prepaid for apartments and those apartments aren't finished yet. And a lot of these people have poured a large portion of their life savings. As you know, in China, property is basically the number one investment, as it is in the U.S., probably even more so. And so there are a lot of individual, actual Chinese people who are exposed to this thing, which makes the politics uh, likely to be very interesting. So I'll leave it there on the basic stats, although I bet I missed a few that uh, you know maybe Greg wants to jump in on. So I, I love your stat about Lehman Brothers, the size of Lehman Brothers, um, and you know six hundred billion Lehman Brothers. One other event I think that it's even post the Great Financial Crisis, uh, Greece, their restructuring was two hundred billion in two thousand and twelve. Okay, so put those in perspective, and as Andy mentioned, that the um, the liabilities are only about a quarter are are, are interest bearing, and the, the rest are prepayments by uh, by house purchasers. What I want to focus on is a twenty five dollar bond trading price, and what that means in perspective of a capital structure priority of claim of the debt over equity, assuming North American courts and whatnot. So when I traded high yield bonds, we had what was called the 60-40 rule, okay? Um, the 60-40 rule is basically bonds don't stay in the 60s for long. They either recover and go back into the 70 cent on the dollar range, which it, it impl- indicates a could be a, a stress situation, but certainly not a distress situation. Uh, but the 60-40 rule means when the bonds go into the 60s, they tend to recover a bit or they gap down into the 40s. Um, That's what you saw with Evergrande. And then they didn't stop going at the 40s. They went down to 25 cents on the dollar, as Andy mentioned. And why is that? Well, any new buyer coming into that capital structure is looking at the bonds as being the future equity. Okay, The equity right now that still trades on the stock exchange is purely an out-of-the-money option. It's stupid money that's in that. It's putting more money into that stock is the wrong part of the capital structure to put your risk into. Uh, If you were to do it, you would go into the bonds. They're trading at 25 cents. Let's say typical restructurings happen on average around 40 cents. That means if you're buying them at 25 cents, historically, you think you can get 40 cents on the dollar return, which is still a restructured product. But you make you know, depending on the period of your time, you make a nice little return, 15 cents on a 25 cent investment. You guys can do the math. That's why bonds, uh, you know, trading at 25 cents have no yield calculation that makes sense. It's purely a recovery. It's a investment to the recovery of that claim in the capital structure. More importantly, 
some of the dynamics of the high yield market in China that I think is important to understand. The United States high yield market, the most developed high yield market in the world by far, has a an asset class below, if you will call it, it's a higher risk asset class. It's called distressed investing. Howard Marks at Oak Tree is a very famous distressed debt investor, very successful, understands courts, understands, um, uh, you know, you need to be at home in the courts as well as at home on investing distressed money. But it's an important buffer for high yield that falls out of the high yield asset class, if you will, into the distress space. And I don't believe that exists in China to a large extent. So you saw this gap down that would have been, in my opinion, more buffered in the United States. The point is this though, guys, at 25 cents on the dollar, it's absolutely over for that company from a debt perspective. The restructuring is gonna be necessary if that's imposed by the CCP in terms of extend and pretend, we don't know. But clearly the market is saying there is zero equity value. That's an option. There is restructuring value. Those are the bonds. And they may have fallen further than otherwise would have been the case because there's no natural distressed debt buyer in China. Then the flip side, Andy, that, that I want to mention, high yield bonds in, the, in, in US dollar based high yield bonds in China, high yield market now yield over 14%, one fourth. Okay, now they're mostly property developers, it's, uh, but that compares to the U.S. high yield market that's 4%. So there's a 10% delta between the U.S. high yield market and the Chinese high yield market. That's unhealthy. It's unsustainable. It's structural to an extent. And this is what we need to dive into. How much of that structural uh leaks into other markets, whether it's domestic Chinese markets and uh, potentially overseas. And I think that's what the, this conversation should be about. Great. Okay. Um, well, so one of the things we care about as Bitcoiners, because some people might be asking, why do we care about Evergrande? Is, is the wider macro environment, um, the systemic risk that exists from something like an Evergrande. Uh, there's been a lot of comparisons to Lehman Brothers. Andy, you brought it up as well. Um, from my research, there is a, a significant difference between this and Lehman Brothers. And you may want to explain some of this, Greg, but the majority of the risk in Lehman Brothers was in financial assets, in credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. Whereas a slight difference with Evergrande is that, well, there's two that I, I, I seem, seem to stand out. They, they own a lot of land. So they actually own a, a, an asset, which itself, will tend to hold value. And secondly, that the uh, CCP has a lot of uh, policy space to try and support this. Um, so I, I, my understanding is we're not really seeing the big short two in China. Um, it, it, it's comparable, but it's, um, it's not exactly the same situation. Yeah, I'll, so I'll jump in there. And I agree with you, Peter, that you know the the liability side of the balance sheet for Evergrande is not uh, as toxic as was Lehman Brothers. So when you think about total debt and total equity, you know you got your your total assets, and then against those assets you got debt, those liabilities, and you got equity. And in the case of Evergrande, it looks like the debt to equity is about eighty percent to twenty percent, or said differently, debt is about eighty percent of the balance sheet. Now, in Lehman Brothers, as you may recall, uh, debt to equity was like 40 or 50 to 1, right? I mean, basically, there was no equity, even at the marks that were on Lehman's books, which themselves were overmarked. So Lehman was clearly insolvent. So that's one. 
Two, as you said, those financial toxic financial liabilities, Lehman and all the investment banks had tons of credit default swap, CDS exposure, something Greg is very familiar with. Um, and that is a hugely levered instrument. And so my recollection is that at the time, the total CDS contracts outstanding either in the U.S. or globally was on the order of 50 trillion or so with a T of notional value uh, back uh, back in the day, back in the Lehman days, which is just an enormous number, right? We're talking right now about liabilities in the in the hundreds of billions. You know, Lehman. I don't remember what Lehman's CDS book was, but I'm sure it was much bigger than Evergrande. So that's all. Uh, you know, that's all true. Now, if I were to uh, take the uh, you know take the other side of the of the argument, what I would say with China is China's kind of this black box, similar to how the U.S. financial system was before the global financial crisis. And many would argue that it's kind of been unraveling for a long time. I mean, I remember I didn't really start paying attention to what was going on in China until about 2015 when they devalued their currency basically in one uh, fell swoop. They had been managing the sort of rough peg to the dollar pretty closely and then, I guess as an experiment, they decided, hey, let's see what happens if we let it go by 3%. So that move actually did bleed into global financial markets. It did not cause a disaster, but it did, you know, it did move stocks across the globe. Um, and I think what's also really interesting here is that it reminds me of a, of, a, of a personal anecdote, which was I have a friend, I went to college with him, and he brilliantly managed to get himself into an early investment in Alibaba. So he made a ton on that. He made a killing. And I spoke with him about it, you know, probably five or six years ago. It was like right after the IPO. And I asked him, I said, look, you know, you've made whatever multiple of your money, some crazy number. You know, it's, you might want to diversify now that the company's public. Um, it's your only asset. I know Bitcoiners uh, wouldn't, don't disagree with this concept. And I don't either, given what I know about Bitcoin. And this is the view he took. But I said, look, just ask yourself what you own, right? Ask yourself as an American investor what your claim against Alibaba really is. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but there's this whole structure uh, called uh, VIEs, variable interest entities, which are the way that foreigners invest in Chinese companies. Um, they're not direct claims to Chinese company stock, no, you, they set up a, an entity in the Cayman Islands. You know, the investor buys shares in the Cayman entity. The Cayman entity doesn't even outright own shares in the Chinese entity. It contracts to have certain rights and responsibilities, you know, with respect to governance and cash flows. But it's really just a contract between an offshore entity and the onshore Chinese entity. And there have been doubts about this structure for a long time, but those are, are coming to the fore now. Meanwhile, the Chinese government's doing all this stuff to crack down on companies in general, whether it's Didi, whether it's the gaming companies, you know, basically the, the China's making a lot of moves. And so there's a lot more doubt, let's say in the minds of investors about what's coming out of China. And I think when you layer on all these various factors that are all hitting us at the same time right now, that's what uh, gives me a little more concern for the situation. I think that was really well said, Andy. Um, I want to build on a couple of things you pointed out. Um, absolutely, the CDS book at Lehman 
you know, uh, you have on balance sheet reporting and then off balance sheet reporting. And as you know, in the financial system, the off balance sheet reporting is perhaps where all the true risks lie. As you know, in the CDS market, most uh, contracts are netted out. Every For the buyer, there's a seller. But then you had the cross default concerns uh, in the great financial crisis. Uh, you know, rumor was that if AIG was let was going to fail, uh, Goldman Sachs would have failed because they bought so much insurance from AIG that if that counterparty failed, Goldman would be on the hook for uh, the, the other side of the trade that they thought they'd laid off the risk. So, you know, on balance sheet versus off balance sheet reporting in the financial system is distinctly different than it is with a property developer, no question. Uh, the other thing I'd want to point out is a um, uh, the psychological contagion, though, that you are uh, perhaps inferring with all the other things that are happening in the market. So let's before we get to the psychological contagion, though, I want to talk about, again, what's happening in the debt markets in China as I see it, not as a trader and don't, I don't have my, uh, you know, all these guys covering me from Wall Street whisp- whispering in my ear, this is what's going on, this is what's going on. But this is what I can, uh, you know, uh, based on my, you know, flyover. Uh, investment grade credit in China is still hanging in quite nicely. So while high yield blew out, Investment grade spreads are holding in nicely. That means that at this moment, the credit contagion is not even spreading to the investment grade market in China. That's a good thing. Um, It's also potentially, don't forget about the Olympics that are coming up and everything that Z wants to, uh, to accomplish with that. So financial contagion, yes, it's big, 89 to $100 billion of interest bearing obligations. The bigger hit is going to be to the Chinese uh, confidence, if you will, and all these people that are going to lose uh, their down payments for their homes. And that will have trickle down effects with real GDP in the in, in China. No question. I've seen that the investment banks, the the uh, Wall Street investment banks are, are, are cutting their growth projections for for China again. So it's probably at this point not the financial contagion event. And I can say that there's reasons that it's not. You never know for sure, but the financial markets are indicating to me that they are keeping this within the property development sector. Uh, In China, there will be some knock-on effects to Asian banks and uh, Euro banks that like HSBC and Standard Charter that have big exposure to the Chinese uh, property land. Uh, That's not surprising, but will it bleed into other financial markets? At this point, it seems contained, but so did everybody say that the subprime housing crisis was contained as well. Uh, Jeff Booth's line, you know, uh, you never know what snowflake causes the avalanche. Uh, let's, Let's just understand that at this point, um, they, uh, the high yield market is in disarray. Uh, Evergrande is a large component of that high yield market. I think over 15% of that market is one issuer, which is sort of silly in its own right. But it's yielding 14%. But yields don't make any sense when 14% of the market is trading at a $25 price on the bonds, indicating a yield on those bonds that's you know, depending on the maturity of the bonds, over 25 or 30% annualized. 
it, you know, in some cases it's over a hundred percent. Like this just doesn't make mathematical sense. Again, it's trading on a recovery, a 25 cent investment today to earn 45 cents in a restructuring X, whatever the CCP imposes. I'm talking from a North, uh, a North American uh, restructuring perspective. So I, I agree everything with Andy said, and I think this is where we need to move it to, uh, you know, the psychological contagion because, you know, China is extremely important in the global macro uh, scene. If they start changing their psychology from a investment basis of inland to a consumption, consuming basis, which I think Z wants as well, you will see impacts on labor, you'll see impacts on inflation, you'll see less demand in the steel uh, for construction, but it would bleed into other, uh, into other areas if the, if the consumer, the Chinese consumer changes psychologically, and that's, that's important. Yeah, Greg makes a bunch of great points there. Can I just jump in real, real quick, Peter? Because I want to get to your question, which is like, so what for Bitcoin, right? Um, so Greg makes a really good point about, okay, it seems to be contained in the high-yield market, in the junk bond market, right? In true panics, financial panics, uh, it bleeds through everything. Even just going back to the COVID crisis 18 months ago, right? Not only did the high-yield, uh, excuse me, the high-grade credit, the high-quality corporate bond market fall out of bed, but even the treasury market fell out of bed, right? That was the, that was the real oh shit moment. <laughs> um, so we're nowhere near yet that yet. Now that said, if you just look at the chart, okay, let's look at Bitcoin price recently, right? Obviously we dipped a bit over the weekend as the news was sort of percolating and people were starting to focus on it. And then we had a bigger dip uh, earlier this week. So, you know, was that random? No, I think that I think probably that Evergrande was the catalyst, you know, for the recent move down in price. Um, let's be honest with ourselves. So that's one thing. Two is, you know, reminder, is Bitcoin still a risk asset? Yes, Bitcoin is still a risk asset. Um, as all the hodlers listening uh, know, know very well. Well, maybe the newbies don't know. Uh, so it's a, good, uh, it's a good reminder that when financial markets uh, go down in general, when risk assets go down in price, chances are very good that your Bitcoin's going to go down in price. And that correlation, you know, when you when you run the data going back years for Bitcoin price, and we've got you know call it a decade of data, right? Because it didn't trade in the in the early couple of years, and and even in the earlier years that it was trading, you know, the price was like so low and and so undependable that you just can't really really use the numbers. But let's say we've got a bunch of years of data. Well, if you look average, you know, at monthly data, you say, oh, Bitcoin's you know, very low correlation to stocks, very low correlation to bonds, very low correlation to gold. Basically, it's not correlated to anything. Okay, but when you look at the moments of stress overall in financial markets, then yeah, basically it's correlated, and especially in, in recent years. And it's not surprising, right? It's the world's now probably most liquid market because it trades 24-7 all over the place. And we're still early in Bitcoin's life cycle. I mean, if it reaches its potential... It's going to be much, much bigger. And by then, yes, it'll be, you know, this giant, massive asset with ballast that's hard to push around. But we're nowhere near that. I mean, I would love, I would love for, uh, for Bitcoin to be the safe haven asset now. But, you know, we're probably a decade away from that, is my guess. So, yeah, it all, it all affects Bitcoin. And then, of course, how could it specifically affect Bitcoin with respect to this credit. Well, we know about Tether. You know, I'm getting sick of talking about it, but it does exist. And we know they own a bunch of commercial paper. And they claim that they don't own Evergrande paper. 
Um, I don't really believe much of what Tether says. So it's like, okay, they, you know, it's interesting that they say that, but it's deny, deny, deny. You know, that's what, that's what governments always do, uh, you know, before the wheels really fall off the, fall off the train or, or the train goes off the tracks. Uh, you have to deny. I think, I can't remember, it was one of the German central bankers that, uh, the, the, the quote was something like, you know, when things get bad enough, you just have to lie, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not worried about Tether. The other thing about Tether that I always think about is like, okay, let's say something in the portfolio loses a bunch of value. Like what, you know, what actually happens? Well, I don't, I, you could get a quote unquote run on the Tether bank, but they could just suspend redemptions. I mean, you know, are, are you going to get your money out of Tether if you go try and redeem, you know, half of the 65 billion or whatever that they've got outstanding? No, they'll just say, um, we're going to need a, a little bit of time, guys. You know, come talk to us in a month or two. And, you know, you could have a sort of, I would say, an orderly unwind over months and years. That's the other thing, too, is if Tether unwinds, it's not like it's going to all go away in a month or two, right? That that kind of an unwind is probably going to take years. Um, so anyway, I'm not that worried about Tether um, with respect to this credit, but it, you have to acknowledge that it's, it's a factor, you know, that could be involved. Next up, I talk to Andy and Greg more about Everground and why Bitcoin is a great hedge. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. Okay, Casa, the safest way for you Bitcoiners to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, are you just holding this all in a single hardware wallet? Have you made some pretty good gains? Have you got it all on exchange? These are all risks that you don't need to take. See, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there's just so many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost and stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. You see, with Casa multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you get to distribute these wallets into different locations, and that's going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, listen, I have been a Casa customer for about a year now, and I'm loving it. I'm renewing. But if you've got any questions about it, you can reach me on email, or you can drop me a DM, and I'm happy to answer any questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming. Because what? They accept Bitcoin. They're Bitcoiners. You know, I'm going to be heading out to see these guys soon. I'm going to head over to Estonia, catch up with them, find out everything that's happening with them. But listen, even if you don't like football, Sportsbet's got you covered with everything. They do tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And this week, we're going to finish off with Exus Wallet, who I'm using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. I've been going on about this for years. So when Exus reached out and they said, Pete, we want to sponsor the podcast, I was like, okay, that's fine, but I've got to have a play with it. And I did. You know, I played with the desktop app. I played with the mobile app. And do you know what? They crushed it, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends, and my family. Exus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with a mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So if you want to find out more, please head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple App Store. So the Tether thing's interesting. Um, you know, firstly, I've never once used Tether just out of interest, never once. Me neither, never. Uh, and I, I've always felt like a run on Tether would actually see probably a flight to Bitcoin 
just because of the way the trading pair works and where people would look to uh, uh, exit. And perhaps maybe they would even flip to other stable coins or even to um, maybe even other assets like Ethereum. But for, for me, if I was holding Tether, the first thing I would... Uh, flip to is is Bitcoin. Uh, the other thing is uh, Bitcoin being a safe haven asset. Funny enough, it has become a safe haven asset for certain individuals. It is for me uh, over a long enough time frame. So it's a it's a long term safe haven asset rather than like a market reaction safe haven asset. But the the question I really wanted to ask um, is when you put the question to me that you know what's the question people want to ask? What what does this mean for Bitcoin? Actually, I, I just want to flip that side slightly. I, I want to say what it means for Bitcoiners. Because I obviously people listen to my show for a range of reasons, and, and I make this show for them. And uh, whilst we have Bitcoiners who really care about the technical side of things and the human rights opportunities that Bitcoin brings, when I make a show like this, when I get Greg Frost and Andy Edstrom on and talk about something with a macro environment, it's going to be one of the bigger shows. It always is. That any show that relates to Bitcoin price, market price, market actions. You know, they absolutely crush it. So I think the wider question is, for me, what I want to ask you both is that there is this issue right now with Evergrande, and it might not lead to systemic uh, risk within the market, but it does exist, and it's another uh, issue based around debt. We also have the US debt ceiling, which uh, Yannick Yellen said we will be hitting in October, the mythical debt ceiling, which always moves. Um, we're seeing just various other issues. We've also got the recovery from uh, stopping the economy around the world. Uh, and in the UK at the moment, we have uh, the government stepping in with gas prices. A number of companies have gone to the wall because uh, wholesale prices are up 250%. I think two have gone bust today. The government has stepped in to fund an American company who produces CO2 because if we don't have enough CO2, we will have food shortages on the shelves. So look, there's so many issues within the markets now. Energy prices, debt issues, inflation. We have now Evergrande in, in China. We have the US debt ceiling. The signals themselves aren't great. And it feels like Every opportunity to kick the can down the road is being used by governments, which is leading to more debt. And so my question to you really is, how fucked are we? <laughs> Greg, you start. <laughs> okay, so great question. And uh, so let's, let's uh, we are, and we are fucked and I'd because that's only pure yeah but it's only pure mathematics but let's hit a couple of the things that you brought out financial markets can generally deal with two risk factors at a time but when you get more than two i you know i can list five right now of which evergrand is one debt ceiling is another you brought it up but you have this fiscal cliff coming up you have Inflation, no question. You have FedEx that just crapped the bed on their uh, on their quarterly report because labor costs are increasing so quickly, their earnings are being compressed. These are stresses in the system that are adding up. So you can deal with two of them. I think it was Michael Tepper, excuse me, um, David Tepper, uh, famous hedge fund manager in the U.S., uh, who said, it's when you have more than two of these that you really got to pay attention, all right? Um, so we have, we, you correctly point out, we have more than two risk factors. Uh, let's bring it back to Bitcoin. Bitcoin will become, and I love Andy's, he said in 10 years it will become an, ins- you know, he didn't use the word insurance asset, but that's what I like to use. It is actually long volatility in my opinion, uh, Bitcoin, but that's my opinion. And FOSS doesn't matter because the market will trade it however they want. And in the short term, 
It definitely is acting as a risk off or a leading indicator. It's neat that uh, it hang, hung in there last week, but then over the weekend, it definitely pre precursored a uh, a uh, a fall in, in risk assets and you know it, a cascading effect. The human mentality is sell your winners, right? I mean, that's just how people trade. It's not the right way to trade, but it is the way people trade. And then if you're being redeemed and you have to raise money uh, for your unit holders, uh, you know, you called it, you, you talked about Tether, the situation with Tether. But if you're managing a hedge fund, you generally don't want to gate your hedge fund and stop unit holder redemptions because you'll never raise money again. I mean, that basically admits that you're a horrible risk manager and you're, you're in all sorts of stuff that you can't, you can't, <laughs> you, can't un, un, you can't unwind, right? So there's those technicalities that apply to Bitcoin in the short term. But Andy, you said 10 years. I couldn't agree more. I think in 10 years, Bitcoin will be the asset that people understand is your insurance. I think of it as credit default swap insurance on sovereign nations or on fiat, on crumbling fiat credit quality. But that takes a long time to educate the market as to how that will happen. And you need bigger institutions in there that will not, you know, that will be happy to to, to buffer the, the price decline and actually say, hey, I need more insurance. And Bitcoin is my ultimate insurance. So will there be a, a decoupling? And when risk off happens in traditional financial markets, you actually see Bitcoin increase in value. I truly believe that will be the case. I could be wrong, and I don't know the time period of which it'll happen, but 10 years seems like a good, you know, sort of uh, time frame for me. The world is going to change so much in 10 years anyway. Uh, Jeff Booth, again, I'll quote him a second time, 100 years worth of change in the next 10 years. So let's not get too fancy about what we think is, uh, is going to ha- uh, happen. And then the final thing on Tether, just circling back to this. Um, look, high yield issuers in North America have no access to the commercial paper market. Zero. OK, it doesn't happen because you don't lend to a company that's susceptible uh, to, uh, you know, a, a sudden event like a default with 90 day commercial paper. That commercial paper could, in fact, be the thing that pushes them into default, because if they can't roll that commercial paper, that means they have a, 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 a credit event. So high yield borrowers of which Evergrande is one in North America do not have access to the commercial paper market. Secondly, though, people that do have access or issuers that do have access to the commercial paper market generally need backup lines of credit from the commercial banks. If you're an investment grade issuer and you issue commercial paper, you still need backup lines of credit from the commercial banks in the event that this commercial paper market seizes up or that something happens to your credit that you can't roll that 90-day paper at a rating agency, a credit rating agency, if you believe they do their job at anywhere close to being professional, you have to ask, where are your backup lines of credit? Are they 365-day, that's a BIS consideration, but are they greater than 365-day commitments to roll your commercial paper? I don't think Tether would have ticked those boxes on either situation. And therefore, I'm not certain that they would have that much commercial paper outstanding. But as Andy says, look, it's China. You, you, you just never know for certain. And the reporting and the, the differing financial standards over there. Uh, I do believe, as you said, Peter, a, a credit event at Tether would be positive for Bitcoin, not just for me from an insurance perspective, but also from the funds flow perspective. So, that's a Bitcoin narrative coming into this uh, this this playpen. 
Over to you, Andy. Yeah, God, could please can Tether blow up? Can we get past this? I mean, what a positive, not only short-term event, as you have both said, like, you know, what are people going to flip flip into from Tether? You know, it's probably going to be Bitcoin. And then secondly, like, can we just get the overhang of that behind us? Because you know that there's some percentage of investors, especially the institutional ones, who are like, yeah, what about the Tether thing? You know, I don't want to touch that. You know, it's just like one of their... <laughs> One of five the risk e- factors. Five, Andy, five emails a week. I reckon I get asking me to go and investigate the tether situation. F- at least five <laughs> a week, and they send me articles and they send me like tweets. And I'm always my starting point is like, I I need like three months to investigate this, and I still don't know if I will like find everything out. Yeah, it's the. I think it's the. It's maybe the most uh, overblown risk factor for Bitcoin as an investment. Um, that's out there. Oh, and by the way, you know, you you talked about Peter, you know, it being a safe haven. I mean, look, you're talking to a couple of uh, you know legacy finance guys, right? We got our investor hats on. Um, I agree with you completely. I mean, having the ability to cold store your keys and bug out if you need to, you know, even with a brain, even with a brain wallet, if you got to cross a border, that you know that gives me tremendous psychic benefit. Uh, and it should to to all the listeners. If you haven't got your cold storage set up, you know you sh- you should do it. And always be you know always be raising your game, right? Ex- be experimenting, be playing around with multisig. You know, don't don't risk your stack. Um, be careful. But um, but that's the uh, you know that's that's the long term path to personal sovereignty. Um, and then the you know maybe the last thing I'll say is like. Okay, well, two more things. One is to add to the risk factors. Greg gave a good list there. Um, I would just add the Fed. Um, I do have to admit that I'm getting a little bit flashbacks to late 2018. Um, In late 2018, the Fed basically was starting to tighten. It actually started, I think, already maybe mid-year to cut back the, the quantitative easing, to cut the tapering. And I think they were moving moving rates a bit, and the market kind of didn't believe them. Um, you know, investors were kind of saying, "Look, they're gonna they're gonna back off." And Powell said, "No, we're we're serious. We're gonna normalize rates." And we got a bear market in stocks um, for a split second in late 2018. Uh, the S and P 500 was down 20. percent um, It lasted a few months. I think it was from like September. It's from like right about now, right in terms of the calendar, you know, to the end of the year. And um, of course, it was after a, a long, a relatively long and large bull run, like we've had, uh, you know, since the pandemic in the last eighteen months, basically uninterrupted. So, yeah, I have to allow for the possibility that um, you know that we're going to get a correction. Now, am I selling any of my Bitcoin? Hell no. Um, you know, I was DCA as you know with Swan. I don't stop buying. I'm always buying. And I don't trade and I don't leverage, you know, just a reminder, sorry, Grandpa Andy here, uh, reminding people, if you want to lose your stack, use leverage. Um, But um, none of this really worries me. I just live with the risk and I live with the vol and I'm extremely bullish on Bitcoin in the long run. And the reality is we don't know what's going to happen in the short term, which is why we hodl. 
Well, Andy, the, that's a really great point. First on leverage, I, I always say the same. Look, some of the best traders I know, they trade with leverage, and usually it's like max one to one point five. In very rare scenarios, three three x leverage. Uh, I don't trade. I buy. I send it straight to cold storage. But I tell you one change I've made to my strategy recently. So um, for the most of the last year, I've held uh, eight weeks cash flow, personal and business in cash, and then the rest goes into Bitcoin. And as I get towards the end of that eight weeks, sometimes. I get close to the line. I've, I've gone over the line once and had to sell a small amount of Bitcoin because I just cut it too fine. But I was always running that strategy and it's worked well for me. I'm not doing that now. I'm actually just, just holding slightly more cash now. Um, so I'm actually use, holding more cash now as a protection just against Bitcoin, uh, a sudden event and there being a risk off. I want to make sure I've got enough cash. So I'm actually, I've extended my runway from like eight weeks now to 16 weeks. Um, and I'm still stacking every month. I still live by this rule that every month I want to end up with more Bitcoin than the previous month, but I'm not buying it like hammer and guns like before because I don't really know where we're going. I'm not entirely confident we're going to see an end of the year like 2017 where we see a run-up. Look, maybe the whales are in full control and that's what they want people like me to believe and they're going to they're going to move the market. But I am definitely holding more cash now. I am conserving cash and I am considering, and I shoot me for this fast, I am also considering holding a little bit of gold. Just a small amount, but just a little bit of gold. I own gold. I own gold, guys. I own silver. Uh, I was at uh, Bretton Woods where a famous gold investors first another shout out I did shout out uh, Lawrence Leopard on your on your Peter Schiff uh, debate um, I'll shout out Larry again but uh, I actually have a bet with a tether bear uh, George Noble out of Boston a famous money manager in Boston uh, George and I have a a handshake bet that uh, on a price target for Bitcoin, which makes no difference to me. I just want to go out for dinner with him somewhere around Christmas time in Boston. The guy is pretty smart. He uh, is absolutely laser focused on Tether. Um, and I think uh, as a gold investor, which he is, um, he wants Tether to be a bigger issue. So, and I'm not putting words in his mouth. He wants Tether to be a big issue. So Bitcoin blows up and then he can actually get in on a down trade. Uh, I, I don't talk markets. What I do do though, and I need to be clear about this, I have a core position in Bitcoin. I trade it every single day. Okay. I trade it because it's in my nature. I'm not telling people to do that, but someone who spent 30 years trading, it's hard to get that out of my system, right? I will tell you, I always traded core holdings in my investment portfolio because that allows you to take advantage of market irrationalities in either direction. Um, I will go on record as saying again that I don't care whether it's 40,000, 30,000 or 60,000 right now, it's a rounding error. We're overthinking this if we're trying to trade it uh, as a, in, you know, put it in your investment portfolio only on a downtick to get you up to your core holding position. That's the wrong way to do this. You just get a core holding position and then you can manage that however you want. Um, there's opportunities in the market on a daily basis for me, uh, including things like GBTC, where you can buy Bitcoin exposure at a 15% discount to net asset value. Now, I'm only I'm hoping for the day where interactive brokers allows you to write covered call options on GBTC because that would be such a perfect moneymaker. It taking vol out of the options market uh, by selling 
and uh, and and then using a fifteen percent discount asset on the covered call basis. My God, this should be the simplest money printing exercise in the history of Bitcoin, but it's not available to, uh, it would be available to me if I still managed institutional money because I just have an Insta set up with a guy that says, okay, we'll do a, we'll do a, a, a swap on, on implied uh, volatility on, uh, on GBTC. I don't want to get too technical here, but the point is there's option, there's uh, value in the markets on a daily basis to someone like me. Um, and yes, I always have a stack that I'm, uh, that's a core stack. I have it in cold storage, but I also trade it on exchanges, uh, uh, generally on stock exchanges. So Bitcoin ETFs in Canada, all of this is really early. And all I can tell you is when the big boys get involved and they're starting to get involved, but they're not really involved in any size, a lot of these market movements are going to be ironed out and then the narrative will change to where Bitcoin is a long vol position, meaning you own it because the rest of your portfolio is essentially short vol. And Bitcoin is the perfect hedge because it's long vol. And when volatility explodes to over 25% on an annualized basis, which it did hit this week, generally markets shut down. New issuance, high yield does not occur when equity vol is over 25%. That's a hard and fast rule that may have changed a little bit since the Fed got involved in trying to dampen volatility by buying credit. But I'll just tell you this, guys. In a normal functioning market, when equity vol exceeds 25%, new issuance high yield shuts down. You need insurance against that. Someday, Bitcoin will be valued as the perfect long vol insurance by big money. That's my prediction. I like that prediction. Uh, I like that prediction a lot. I mean, you know, it's, and Foss, you're dead on. The reality in asset markets, and I, now speaking with my wealth manager hat on, is just about everything we own is is long vol, as, as Greg said. I mean, it's, you know, stocks obviously are, um, shortfall. Kind of- They're shortfall, right? Stocks oh, are shortfall. Sorry, said, yes, credit is, yes, yeah, yes. Credit is shortfall. shortfall. Stocks are shortfall. And well, you need the you need the insurance. Oh, stocks. Oh, it doesn't matter. Credit 100% is shortfall. And yes, as sorry. a credit manager, I always needed long vol positions to balance my short vol exposure. Yeah, sorry, yeah. and so, Andy, just for just for the listeners, when I say the listeners, I also mean me. What do you ex- what do you exactly mean by long vol, short vol? Yeah, yeah. So volatility is how fast the dollar price or the fiat price, I should say how fast and how far really. It's really how far given unit time the price of something is moving. So if the price is bouncing all over the place, then the vol, the volatility is high. And it just so happens that generally when volatility is high, it's high to the downside, right? By the way, we know this in Bitcoin. <laughs> when Bitcoin moves high, when you get a multi-thousand dollar candle, which direction is it? Is it up or down? <laughs> if I tell you, you know, if I tell you there's a multi-thousand dollar candle, you know, five thousand dollar candle, chances are very good that it's down, not up. So yeah, and that's because you know when stuff's bouncing around prices rapidly or in um, in large magnitude, it means people are nervous, and if people are nervous, they're selling risk assets. So so generally, uh, asset prices are going down. So yeah, so when vol is high, stocks go down, you know, credit-sensitive uh, bonds, you know, junk bonds, high-yield bonds, you know, 
bank loans go down. Even the weaker high-quality credit goes down. The only thing that goes up in general is treasuries, you know, high-quality government bonds. Even that wasn't always true. It has been true for for several decades now, but it wasn't always so. Um, it's not true when you get liquidations, right? That's that's again what really spooks the Fed. What really spooks the central bankers is when the treasury market, you know, starts to go down with the uh, high volatility, because the amount of leverage that is tacked on to treasuries, especially in the repurchase market, the repo market is so enormous that it cannot fail. I mean, really, really, the financial system will come apart. The banks will blow up if the treasury market blows up, which is, by the way, why we always do this song and dance, uh, which we're about to face about the debt ceiling, right? Uh, because, you know, people say, oh, God, you know, what if there's a default? And a default really would be, would be very bad. Um, I personally love the debt ceiling because it's a reminder of how mad, you know, how crazy this whole situation is. It's just another reminder. Oh, yes, we are printing yet another record amount of government debt that will never get paid back. Um, I appreciate that uh, that reminder, although unfortunately it doesn't seem to uh, to change the policy. But anyway, that that's the the story on vol. And um, have, yeah, actually having hedges to volatility um, there aren't that many of them, to be honest. Um, you can use options. Um, that's you know kind of the most the most common way to do it. Generally, options bleed value over time, so you have to kind of be clever and pick your spots, right? You want to be buying the protection when it's cheap, when the volatility is low, and you don't really want to be buying the protection if you can avoid it when volatility is high, because that's when that protection is expensive. Hence the hence the analogy that Bitcoin, if it's going, you know, my my intrinsic value for Bitcoin based on credit default swaps of sovereign nations is over one hundred and fifty thousand U.S. dollars today. And now that intrinsic value will increase as things like volatility increase and things like sovereign debt defaults happen more and more often. And we've already had over 10 countries default in the last 10 years. So sovereign defaults happen all the time. Bitcoin, my price target for Bitcoin is over 2 million bucks a Bitcoin. But right today, my intrinsic value for Bitcoin is over 150,000 US and it's trading wherever, 40,000-ish. First of all, I buy it because it's one third of the value of my intrinsic value of the insurance. I buy it with my eyes closed and then I doubly buy it with my eyes closed when uh, I, my price target is two million bucks, and I don't care. I shouldn't care about five thousand dollars here and there for my core holding. Do I trade about, care about five thousand bucks for my trading portfolio? Yeah, I mean that's how I make my living. You know, I trade price movements. That's what I do for a living. I just do it for my personal account now. I used to do it professionally. Uh, doing it professionally really blows because uh, when you do well for your clients, they were so smart because they put money with you. They were really smart. And then when you crap the bed, uh, you're an idiot. They had nothing to do with putting their money with you. You're just the idiot, right? So you never get any glory. You just get all the crap. Um, managing your own money, it's a lot more fun, a lot less emotional. Uh, and what I would say to anybody out there, if you own zero Bitcoin right now, Firstly, you're a horrible risk manager. Secondly, and more importantly, 
you are taking an extreme amount of risk, again, because the world is set up as a short vol trade. Compressing volatility generally corresponds with increasing stock prices and credit spreads that narrow. As soon as vol increases, credit spreads blow up, stock prices generally fall, and you need insurance against that event. So just to make it simple, Peter, long volatility is your insurance policy. Lots of people will go to the options market for insurance, but you pay through the nose. Options are very tough to trade properly and generally are, you know, uh, uh, you know, you make money on nine out of 10 of your options trade. And then on the 10th one that you lose money on, you lose everything you made on your last nine trades and more because that's how markets are set up. Markets will always move in the direction that causes the most pain to most people. That is a trading philosophy. If you are Buying insurance when insurance is expensive, you're the fool, right, Andy? You're supposed to buy insurance when it's cheap. And right now, Bitcoin is extremely cheap. You close your eyes, you buy some, you get to your core holding level, then you sleep at night. You don't even look at the price in fiat. You worry about the other 90% of your portfolio that's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is your insurance. Amen. That's how I pitch it to my clients. Um it's sort of a hybrid. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's it's a, it's a long run insurance, but also probably it's going to go up a lot in price, you know, in the interim, right? Even if you don't need that insurance in the next few years, you know, is Bitcoin price going to be higher a few years from now? Yeah, probably it is. Um, and you size the position. I mean, you know, I suspect that all all of us on this uh, pod here are, are irresponsibly long, but for those who aren't irresponsibly long and just want a smaller position, and they lose their minds about the volatility. Oh my God, the price is up you know, 10% today or it's down 20% tomorrow. You just say, fine, you know, just put a few percent in. You know, the, the result for your portfolio will be minuscule in terms of losses. Even if it goes to zero, which it won't, uh, it's still not going to ruin you. So just size it appropriately, and as Greg says, sleep at night. Greg, do you, do you think that the companies are starting to wake up to this now. And what do you think is the the problem with that? Because, you know, you've talked to me a lot about bonds, and it feels to me like bonds, they're like, if you compare it to inflation, you're going to be losing money anyway, right? So why do you think people are still averse to Bitcoin? Do you still think they're missing the picture? They've not gone down the yeah. rabbit hole. They're being yeah. sold Intellectually on the lazy, mainstream you know? media spreading. What, what do you think the Intellectual laziness, 100%. Certainly some conflicts. I mean, if you're Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and you own so many financial services stocks, do you want Bitcoin to disintermediate the rest of your portfolio? No. So then you go out and you say, well, that's got to be rat poison squared because I'm 94 years old and I know technology so darn well. I mean, the conflicts are so obvious with some of these money managers. But the more important one, Peter, and this is what you're, you're nailing, the traditional 60-40 equity bond weighting is absolutely dead if you have a prescribed rate of return of, let's say, CalPERS at 8% annualized. Running through some quick math, if your fixed income portfolio at 40% yields even 3%, which is high because U.S. 10-year treasuries at one and a, you know, one and a third and high yields at 4%. But let's just assume that that 3% is your fixed income return, targeted return before defaults. Okay, 
or after defaults, I should say, your 3% on 40% of your portfolio equals 1.2 percentage points, okay? Towards your 8% blended target, which means the 60% of your portfolio that's in equities needs to earn 6.8% of the 8% target. That means equities need to return over 11 or 12% annualized for the rest of time just for pension funds to get to their 8% prescribed yield target. And there's so much accounting gimmickry that goes on, actuarial actuarial accounting gimmickry that goes on with the pension fund, uh, whether they're funded or unfunded and the assumptions. Let me just tell you, if you could get these guys to put two or 3% of their allocation into Bitcoin with the asymmetric return opportunities of Bitcoin, the way I see it, you'll change pension accounting for the better. You will change returns to pensioners and the people that are counting on these pension funds to truly be funded, my God, you have to make this trade. It is just pure mathematics. And it's coming. I talked to an actuarial accountant who wants to get out of the business, actually, in the U.S. He's in Philadelphia. He goes, I'm sick of this. I'm absolutely sick of this smoke and mirrors that, uh, that we pretend that these, fund, these pension funds are actually truly funded. It is impossible to earn an 8% targeted return when yields on the U.S. 10-year are at 1.3, okay? Why is this so difficult for people to understand the most simple elementary mathematics? Bonds are just a contract. They do not change. That is all you're going to get from a bond. An equity at least has growth opportunities, but most equities actually fail as well. You know, that's just what equities do. This is the advantage that we have in Bitcoin, right? So, I agree completely. You know, is 60-40 going to work? No, it's not going to work going forward. So why, you know, why don't wealth managers change? Why don't pension funds change? Why don't retirement plans change? Um, it's amazingly slow moving. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I really got Bitcoin, you know, I, the conclusion I reached was, okay, make a big bet and hyper-Bitcoinization is going to happen next year, <laughs> Right. You, you think you figured it out, and now it's happening. Like, it's happening in front of your eyes. And yet it takes years to play out. I mean, the same factors, the, the same sloth, the same slow-moving speeds of these giant pools of capital, it's just kind of breathtaking. And part of it is, is the what has worked in the past, right? This is, this is the real curse of success, which is, it's been a one-way trade. All dips must be bought. Just buy equities, right? This is over decades now, right? The last time it didn't work to just buy equities was back in the 1970s, okay? That's a long time ago. Nobody managing money, almost nobody managing money today was alive and lived through that period. I had this conversation with my clients when I'm talking about why to buy or why to own those, those hedges that, that Greg is talking about against Vol or against, uh, you know, general loss in risk assets. And I always ask them, like, you know, tell me about your experience in the 1970s. And, you know, they remember, you know what they remember? They remember paying a lot for gas. What they don't remember is what happened to their portfolios because they didn't have portfolios, right? Most of them didn't even own their houses. Some of them owned their houses. Some of them owned their houses and were paying mortgage interest rates in the double digits, right? I get clients talking about how they, how they, put on a 14% interest rate mortgage. 
But they didn't have stock portfolios and they didn't have bond portfolios. So they just don't have any lived, nobody around now has any lived experience of a period in which it doesn't work to just buy stocks and then hold that 40% in bonds basically as as, balance, as ballast or as sort of Those cash mandates though, Andy, this is cool though. Those mandates were made when interest rates were. When I started trading, US 10-year interest rates were 14%. It's not hard to get an 8% bogey when you're starting with a U.S. Treasury yield, which, you know, the quintessential risk-free, even though it's never been truly risk-free, it is the quintessential risk-free asset, was yielding 14%. You could have just closed your eyes and said, for the next 30 years, I'm going to own a 30-year Treasury bond that's yielding 14%. Sold to Foss, he's going to manage money, and he's going to give you that return. Well, now it's 1.3. That's all it is, is 1.3 now. It's amazing. A big, aren't big, you, different game. Aren't you jealous of uh, guys like Buffett that started their uh, investment he never track bought records a bond, back though. then? He, ne- he never actually bought a bond. The guy that I'm jealous of is Ray Dalio because yeah. he was smart enough to use this thing called risk parity where he balanced leverage in the equity markets against leverage in the bond markets where interest rates, when they go down, the capital gains in bonds is a mark-to-market gain. Ray Dalio was a genius in his risk parity trading when interest rates actually provided a buffer for you to gain capital appreciation on your bond price. Guess what, Ray? You don't got that anymore, dude. And you did go out and say that you'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond, but then you're dialing it back. You're dialing it back because you're afraid. You're too smart by a half, a half, Ray Dalio, okay? Stop fucking with the people's mathematics. You understand it, the people don't. And it's dangerous when you get a guy like Ray Dalio who walks back his words because it's going to penalize his business. Very, very dangerous. Okay, this is about the kids. Well, I do, I do wonder how much influence comes in from the banks on this because oh, hundred percent. Well, a couple of things here, like Andy, you said about making a bit big bet. Hyper Bitcoinization happens next year, and we do have these narratives coming in in every different direction from MSN or opinion leaders against Bitcoin, governments as well. I do wonder a lot about the banks because. I talk a lot about El Salvador. I've been going back and forth for two years now. But the last two trips was specifically the last trip where I was there when the Bitcoin law passed. Everything that is wrong with the banking system becomes very obvious. And I can give just a few small anecdotes, okay? So I turn up the country with no dollars and I go straight to El Zonte and almost, well, in, even before the law passed, everywhere I went, I could spend Bitcoin. And I did, because it's the Lightning Network, and I'm buying things that are $2, $3. Maybe I'm buying lunch, and it's $10, $20. And I just scan my phone, and it's done. But now we have the Bitcoin Law Pass, so I can go almost anywhere in El Salvador, and I don't have to have cash on me. Also, even if I didn't have a cash on me in the past, I used to be able to just use my debit card. I you know, buy a cup of coffee or whatever. Yes, I'm paying $3 for the cup of coffee, but I'm paying a dollar to my bank, or maybe it's a pound, I can't even remember. And also, the flip side of that, you've now got Starbucks accepting Bitcoin. Uh, Yes, they've got volatility to deal with and think about, but the reality is there's this other thing they can think about, is that when I'm paying, when I bought my coffee in Starbucks with my card, they're paying a much lower fee to the Bitcoin network than they're paying to the credit card companies. And all of a sudden, they can consolidate this money, and perhaps they have to send some back to Seattle. Maybe that becomes easier to move. And then we, we look at the remittance market, which comes up all the time. I think Aaron Van Weerden just said it on a Stefan Levera show. We don't need to talk about the remittance market now because it's pretty much going to die. 
Uh, Bukele has put uh, 50 Chivo machines across the US so Salvadorans can send money. The 3 million Salvadorans who send money back to the country can do that for free as well. Everything that the banking system does, it puts up walls to take little bits of money from us and to uh, operate surveillance on behalf of governments. It's collapsing because we now have something which is instant, final settlement, near zero cost. It isn't just a novelty to use Bitcoin in El Salvador. It's convenient. It's absolute convenience. And so I look at the banks now and think, holy shit, you're fucked. You're, you're, about, you're about to have your blockbuster moment. You're, 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 what used to be great for you is that you would have a, a bank on every single high street. It's now a liability for you because you've now got these buildings which cost money to operate, need a lot of staff, and, and you're being outcompeted by the neobanks and Bitcoin. I, I see, a, well, I know now, right now, I operate with neobanks and Bitcoin. I do not operate with a major high street bank because they cannot provide a service I need. And this this is a different type of contagion that's going to spread throughout the financial system. And this adapt or die. Yeah, that's God. That's well well said, Peter. It's right in front of you, right? It's in it's in stark contrast, right to right in front of your face. I like what you said about it's Bitcoin and um, I don't remember. Oh, the neo banks, which is yeah, the banks really are under assault not only from Bitcoin but also from let's call it fintech, right? And services like Venmo and Square, um, at least here in the US and it's different countries in Europe and different places, you know, it's a different set of tech giants in China. They have really been taking a bite out of the payments uh, function. I mean, they still, you know, back end connect to your bank account. Um, so there's still there's still a credit, you know, transformation function there for the banks. Like what should banks do? Banks should take deposits and they should issue debt, and then they should allocate credit. They should lend to businesses and to homeowners, you know, and commercial property owners. You know, that's really arguably their core function. Um, but they also had had have had this uh, nice little transfers business, including all the fees, right? You know, the overdraft fees that uh, that account for like billions of dollars in profits just in the U.S. for the banking system, which hit. You know the the people that can least afford it uh, the hardest. <laughs> Andy, can I just jump in and say one point now? Do, I don't have an overdraft facility, and I don't need one. Bitcoin is my overdraft. I love it. I love it. Bitcoin is my overdraft. Meme that. <laughs> and Andy, Andy, as a former hedge fund manager, I'm not sure if you ever worked in the hedge fund business, but I did. Uh, what would be a core short of yours? A core short, like at the moment. You're saying like Sorry, what's Peter said? Yeah, a, a core short. I'll just set it up for you. Western yeah. Union. The two yeah, largest yeah. owners of Western Union are Vanguard and BlackRock. ETF, passive ETF. Get your weighting in exposure to uh, to the S and P 500 because that's how much it is in uh, in S and P points. Uh, my God, come on! Western Union should be on every hedge fund manager's core short. Uh, Position it has a dividend yield, big deal. It hasn't moved in three years, and the two largest owners are passive ETFs that are just easy to borrow from. Meaning you got to borrow the shares, um, and they're stupid money. Okay, I like it. I like that. Great, great, best short idea I've heard. Uh, I've heard in a while. I'll be honest with you, Foss. I don't personally short anything anymore because <laughs> you know the the Fed keeps printing. All dips are bought. You know, it's near impossible to make any money. It used to be, by the way, that when you shorted, you got paid. 
Um, and now you have to pay to borrow. So I'm out of the shorting business, but uh, you you uh, you put it on, my friend. I hope I hope you got. I don't. I don't on. have it on. I don't have the. You know, I don't. It was in my old life. Um, let's just say this, guys. Uh, there are still so many opportunities for the capital markets to actually become efficient. There's too much stupid money out there or the pressure of money. Uh, but over time, Bitcoin will be the uh, benchmark for proper capital allocation and everything else is going to pay the proper. And uh, Western Union, uh, I'm sorry, guys, but your business is going the way of the horse and buggy. And that's just the way things are. Uh, don't fire me hate mail. If your father works for Western Union, uh, he's probably had a really great career. Uh, I don't want the world to unravel. I don't want Western Union to go to zero. But guess what? They've made a lot of money charging people a lot of fees to transfer money in remittances. And that is going away because there's very simply a better way to do it, a better Greg, technology. I, I'm going to disagree with you. I want Western Union to go to zero. Uh, I, okay. I, you know, not overnight because I don't want people to lose their jobs. I don't want lots of risks, but I want all remittance companies to go to zero. Fuck them. If we can have people transferring money from friend to friend, from friend to family at zero cost, I think that is great for the world and that's great for people. So fuck Western Union. Attaboy. I'll, uh, <laughs> I, then I, here, here, send hate mail to Peter. I'm uh, I'm good with the trade. Send the hate, hate mail to Peter, <laughs> along with the tether, along with the tether uh, hate mail or research mail. Yeah, you can have that one, <laughs> fellas. Well, I'm going to have to sign off yeah. shortly. So if you want to wrap it up, um, any you know, closing I, thoughts? I just want to say, yeah, here's my closing thoughts, Andy. Wow, really love talking to you, man. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Uh, I, you know, I will just say the Bitcoin community is such an amazing community. Uh, I meet people, new people every day, but when I meet a guy like you or a guy, third time I'm bringing up Jeff Booth, I'm not having a, you know, I'm uh, Jeff Booth is a, a fellow Canadian that I'm just in awe of his, uh, his thought processes and his, his desire to make the world a better place. And I think uh, Andy and Peter, you both share those same, uh, same things. So thanks for having me on your show. Um, I do want to make the world a better place. Uh, I don't want the financial system to unravel, but I promise you that we're doing everything in our power to try and make it unravel. Uh, and that's not a good thing because we need an orderly transfer of power from a uh, fiat system that is your checking account to a Bitcoin uh, standard, which is your savings account, your most beautiful technological store of value ever created by man, and you can transfer it across time and space. So, thank you for having me. Amazing, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, man. Nobody uh, wraps up financial knowledge uh, with entertainment value in the same way that uh, that you do. This is a this conversation has been a pleasure. I agree with you, man. I I used to worry more about you know Bitcoin being the pin breaks the bubble, right? Being the catalyst that, that brings down the financial system. Now that I've seen how long it takes, again, back to my comment that, oh, you know, you, you find the trade and then you buy and then you think it's going to happen tomorrow. The more I, re I think that actually it's more and more likely to be relatively orderly and the more grateful I am that we have Bitcoin, you know, as the escape hatch, I think there's a good chance that we have a I guess it's relatively orderly transition. Let's just say a transition that's not as bad as it could be. And so that's what I that's what I hope for. For me, uh, Bitcoin is hope. 
And um, you know, meanwhile, I uh, I just stack sats and uh, and we talk Bitcoin and try to get as many of the people we care about into the tent. And thank you uh, both. Thank you, Peter, for uh, having us on for this chat. No, thanks. Thank you both for coming on at short notice. Uh, love talking to both of you, Greg. It's happening quite regularly at the moment. Andy, it's been a little while, but like you're both always welcome on the show. Uh, you're both bringing the fire. I learn a lot from both of you, and uh, yeah, Andy's book's great. You'll enjoy it, Greg. I think you've got a book in you at some point as well. Uh, but appreciate this. I think everyone's going to love this. I think it's a great show. We got some great knowledge bombs out of this. And best of both of you. And hopefully, at some point, we'll all see each other in person and have a beer soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. Peace out. Okay, did you enjoy that one? I think Andy and Greg were two of the best people to get on. Would have been great to have someone like Lynn as well, but she was a little bit busy, so she was the one who recommended Andy, and I knew we had to have Greg as well. Now, it doesn't appear to be that the world is ending just yet, which is great news, because I've got to get over to Nashville, but it is always good to take a step back and realize that risk exists, despite what the Fed and the CCP says. There's so much leverage in the system, you never know when something can break a little or a fuckload. Now, Bitcoin fell back in March 2020 crash, but then we turned the money printers on up to 11 trillion, I think it is now, and Bitcoin went to all-time highs. Now, what I found interesting is that Greg Foss said in 10 years, Bitcoin might be the safety people flee to instead. Um, it still appears to be a risk-off asset at the moment. Not for me. Uh, my risk-on is a longer term. So maybe in the long term, Bitcoin does fix this. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that lot. It is Sunday. I am going to catch a flight. I'm off to Nashville. I love you all, and I will see you all next week. If you do want to drop me an email, it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. You can jump into my Telegram group, and if you want to support the show, you know the story by now. If you haven't done it, hop onto Apple Podcasts and go and leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. All right, I'm out of here. Love you all, and I'll see you all next week.